We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Hey, welcome, Steve Cunningham with Sense of Fidelity. I'm coming back with you with Dr. Alan Femister. Uh, welcome back for the councils, a history of councils. Welcome, father, doc, doctor, father, wherever you are. <laughs> I mean, father in a temporal sense, not in a spiritual sense. I was to too many priests the last couple of days. Like, doc- <laughs> <laughs> My brother used to get caught doing that. He told that he was with one of his football coaches. And he just, you know, used to being around priests all the time. He goes, Father? He goes, oh, what am I doing? It's coach! <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know if this happens in the States. It used to be notorious that Catholics would accidentally genuflect before getting into the row in the cinema. <laughs> I've seen people do that at the theaters here. You know, just, yeah. Well, not now because they're all closed, but yeah. Get, yeah. get up to the view. Yeah, genuflect. What am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, today we're doing the first and second Leon. That's right, Leon. Leon. Leon, Leon. We talked about this before, and I still screwed up. I yeah, I don't know how you pronounce it. It used to be pronounced lions in English, but nobody does. It sounds ridiculous. It's like these people talk about Louis the Fourteenth. Doesn't make any sense. But anyway, say the councils after Lateran. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So um, uh, the the they're they're kind of a, a, a set, obviously. As uh, um, they're, they're they're within a, a short number of years of each other, twenty years of each other. Um, uh, first and second Council of Lyon. So the first Council of Lyon is in uh, twelve forty-five, and the uh, second Council of Lyon is in twelve seventy-four. And uh, as you probably know, Lyon is in France, and um, uh, and they were held there because the popes who held them, Innocent the Fourth and Blessed Gregory the Tenth, wanted to keep out of the clutches of the Holy Roman Emperor. So, uh, so he needed to do it in an inaccessible to him place, and that's why they were held there. Um, I suppose they're the, yeah, northwestmost. Um, they're, they're the most westernly located of the ecumenical councils. Um, so um, they are, and and they're the last of the sequence of very closely situated councils the next one vn is is uh, quite a bit later and then well quite a bit not that long afterwards but then constance is uh, which is the one after that is 100 years after that and then uh, lateran 5 is 100 years after that trent it doesn't do very much um trent is not that long after that because they were dragged trick kicking and screaming into doing trent um and uh, and then there's hundreds of years until vatican one and then another hundred years until vatican two ish 90 something like that so um uh so so this is the it's begin they begin to space out again after this intensely packed period of ecumenical councils there in the high middle ages um and um uh, so and they both uh, they're both really caused by the problem over the empire 
Now, um, we talked about before how um, the reason why the popes have been able to um, exercise this amazing power in this, this period, the High Middle Ages, which runs from roughly the middle of the 11th century until until the end of the Second Council of Lyon in, in the 13th century, um, they've been able to exercise this, this enormous power because of the Great Schism, because... Um, the the uh, they didn't have to worry about the other patriarchs in the east because they were all in schism, and um, and they and, and part of the background to the great schism is their creation of these western this new western line of emperors in 800, and uh, which which kind of breaks the umbilical cord between the Byzantine Empire and the papacy. Um, and uh, but these are also big problems for a number of reasons. So that so the papacy is it's not good that 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 Rome and the other four of the late antique patriarchs uh, are not in communion with each other. That's not a good thing. The papacy is very unhappy about it, and it defines a lot of what the papacy does. The calling of the Crusades is originally intended to win back the Byzantines by saving them from the Muslims, and. Um, the other problem is uh, is the it seemed like a, a good idea at the time, and it probably was uh, creating the the uh, Charlemagne as Holy Roman Emperor in eight hundred, and it allowed the papacy to assert in a really definitive way the supremacy of the spiritual power over the temporal power by sort of creating a Roman Emperor out of nothing, as it were, um, and um, but. Uh, if they had problems with the Byzantine emperors trying to bully them when they were on the other side of the Adriatic and were constantly in decline as a uh, as a as a great military power, um, having the Germans be the uh, the the emperors instead, who are just over the Alps. I mean, we shouldn't underestimate the difficulties of getting a large army over the Alps, but it's certainly a lot smaller than the difficulties of getting a large army army over the Adriatic. Especially when you've got the Islamic Caliphate breathing down your neck, you don't really want to send huge numbers of troops over the Adriatic. So, so in that sense, they they created a problem much closer to home. Um, however, um, uh, they ought to have had this great trump card against these new Holy Roman emperors in the West, which is that uh, they weren't their credentials were very dependent on the Pope. I mean, they weren't. It's not like Byzantine Empire where you know huge, amazing capital city incredibly unbelievably ancient stuff everywhere unbroken continuity going all the way back to constantine and augustus you know from the byzantine's own perspective their roman credentials are absolutely cast iron of course the the latins um have begun to not really see that because of the fact that the byzantines speak greek and we not unreasonably think of latin as rather a definitively roman thing um and uh, but the byzantines didn't see it that way at all I mean, the Byzantines kind of lost track of the fact, they seem to have almost forgotten that the Romans used to speak Latin. Um, uh, there's, there's a Byzantine emperor in the um, ninth century who writes to uh, the Pope, no, no, is it the Pope or is it, is it the, is it, it might be Louis the second in the West. Anyway, it's, and he says, he refers to Latin as a barbarous and Scythic tongue. Right, you're like, hang on, you're the Roman emperor, supposedly. What do you mean Latin's a barbarous and Scythic tongue, right? Scythic means Asiatic tribes in what's now the Ukraine, the sort of general sort of, you know, sort of barbarous, uncivilized thing. And you're like, well, hang on. 
Um, so, so, so the, the cultural estrangement, and, and we talked before about how how um, Thotius, the great baddie of of the ninth century, he, who who kind of is is the um, is the figure behind the great schism in many ways. He um, he he was incredibly erudite, but he he didn't have any Latin at all. He just didn't think it was a serious, you know, it wasn't top of his agenda. So I mean, you, you're 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 looking at a very serious disappearance of, of, of understanding there um, so so yes as we say the Crusades were intended to to fix this as we spoke about last time in 1204 this goes completely wrong horribly wrong when when uh, the Venetians and uh, um, and, a, and a failed Imperial claimant from Byzantium managed to divert the fourth Crusade to, to conquering and then eventually sacking city of Constantinople so that the so that the situation is unbelievably embittered and uh, and so now there are these Western uh, super fake uh, um, Latin emperors of Constantinople who've taken over Constantinople and the patriarch of Constantinople is a, is a Venetian cleric uh, celebrating the Roman rites in the Hagia Sophia so this is like I mean I mean it's not a one-off offense I mean it's like you know that every day the Byzantines of their own capital city have to see this, as they see it, alien and inferior culture dominating their city and, and, and rubbing their noses in the dust. And, and you know, nothing succeeds like success, and the, and the Latin Empire of Constantinople didn't succeed. Uh, it, was, it was terrible. <laughs> and uh, uh, shrinking, ever-shrinking territory, first emperor captured by a bunch of barbarians and never seen again. It's not even like... It's not even like uh, um, it's not even like you know he died spectacularly in battle. He just got captured, and no one knows what happened to him. So like, yes, wasn't wasn't successful. Um, now, uh, but when we were looking at Innocent the Fourth um, last time, Innocent the Third, excuse me, last time, um, uh, we also one of the things that that was very important in the, in the immense power of the Holy See during his reign, which is generally seen as the height of the medieval papacy, is that. Um, is that the emperor was a kid, or at least the guy who was um, who was who would have been the emperor was a child, mm -hmm. and this is because the emperor that the popes had quarrelled with for decades in the previous century, in the twelfth century, uh, Frederick Barbarossa, his son was looking like he was going to be a real problem for the papacy, uh, Henry the Sixth, because he married the heiress to the kingdom of Sicily. So it looked like the Hauenstaufen dynasty, who were the people who were now the emperors, uh, that they since since before Frederick Barbarossa's time, since the, since the first half of the. 12th century. It looks like they were going to be ruling northern Italy and ruling Sicily with the Holy See squashed in the middle there, uh, which was very much what they wanted to avoid. And then he died unexpectedly, but not before having a kid. So the kid was was a bit nerve-wracking from the Holy See's perspective, because he, he was, he was uh, you know, he was this charmed inheritance. But, but it, uh, for the time being, it looked like it wasn't going to be a problem. So they the Holy See was sort of committed to defending uh, this child's uh, Frederick, his um, inheritance, um, but um, they were quite keen to see a rival dynasty take control of Germany, and and they, so they backed a rival dynasty for 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 the initial part of Frederick, young Frederick's life, and put um, this uh, Emperor Otto the Fourth onto the throne of, of, of the Holy Roman Empire in Germany instead, uh, who came from a rival, a rival uh, German house. And, uh, and it's from this, um, from this period 
that the 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 Italian factions, which dominated a lot of Italian politics for a very long time, uh, came out. So the, the ones who supported the papally-backed candidate from the rival dynasty were known as the Guelphs, and the ones who supported the Hohenstaufen dynasty were called known as the Giblines. And um, uh, and and long after this specific dynastic quarrel had passed away, that became the name for the pro-papal versus the pro-imperial factions in all the different Italian city-states. Um, it lasted for a very long time indeed. In fact, um, I be it, certainly Napoleon believed, I don't know if this is true or not, but he believed that uh, Bonaparte, his surname, Buonaparte, because in fact Napoleon was kind of secretly Italian, um, uh, was uh, meant, which means the good part, as it sounds like it does, um, was was a, was a, a reference to the Giblines from approving fellow Giblines, so that his remote ancestors yeah. were Giblines in Italian politics. Uh, but I, I think Napoleon believed that. I don't know. I don't know whether it's true or not. Um, but uh, but but if it is, I mean, that shows you the the long reach of this quarrel. But anyway, as often happens, Otto the Fourth turned out not to be a friendly pro papal chap. After all, once he'd got his imperial credentials off the Holy See, he immediately reverted back to wanting to have, you know, overweening power over the papacy. So, so the uh, so so the popes, uh, like as usual, had to bitterly repent um, having backed this particular temporal horse, and uh, and they uh, and they so the only other horse in town was Frederick the Second. So, so they um, Frederick of Hohenstaufen. So they. Um, so they had to go to backing the guy who they'd been hoping not to have rule both Sicily and the empire at the same time. So uh, now Frederick II, so he 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 is he looms large in both of these councils. I mean, he's dead in the second one, but his shadow uh, still still falls over it. Um, he was a very remarkable man. Um, uh, he comes across as 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 pretty staggeringly evil and sinister. Of course, he was absolutely hated by the popes. So. There's a lot of people saying nasty things about him, and you know the the defamation laws were not what they are now in those days. And uh, so, especially if if you if it was the Pope's pals doing the defaming, so it's so it's, so I mean, but of course it may not have been. Uh, so you know, it's it's always tricky because you never know where, if if all of this is absolutely as 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 if he's really as terrible as he sounds like he is. But he certainly sounds like he was pretty terrible. So one of the weird things was he was he was he was born in a, in a, in at least. According to tradition, he was born in a public square in Italy because his his mother, who's absolutely crucial because she's the heiress to the King of Sicily, uh, she was very old when she, I think she was 40 when she, I mean, that's very old by medieval standards, when she gave birth to him. And uh, so so whether he was really her child was 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 enormously important, obviously, because if, he, if because she was the, the one that gave him his enormous power. Um, so in order to, uh, the traditional account anyway, is that in order to avoid claims that he was like a foundling child that had been smuggled in, um, uh, the, um, uh, she, she gave birth in the middle of his public square, uh, which is slightly disturbing. But anyway, there we are. Um, and um, uh, she died quite soon. Over there? <laughs> yeah, well, both she, she died quite soon into his life. His father died even earlier. So, so he was... Um, he was kind of, you know, in the hands of tutors and and, and power brokers from quite an early point. Um, he uh, Sicily was a funny place because it had been um, 
it was the bit of Italy that the Byzantines had held on to for the longest. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of Greek speaking in Italy, sorry, in Sicily, and and it had been treated um, for a long time as part of the Patriarchate of Constantinople because the, um, as, as we talked about many episodes before, uh, many episodes ago, we, um, he, it was taken off, uh, illegally removed from the from the Patriarchate of Rome by the iconoclast emperors to punish them for not having um, not having towed the line over iconoclasm. Mm -hmm. um, but it was part of Byzantine territory even before uh, for you know for a very long time. So it had been part of, um, of when the Ostrogoths ruled Italy, they'd had control over southern Italy and Sicily, but. But that was really the only break in it in its control by the Roman government for a very, very, very long time. Um, and uh, but then it was conquered by the Muslims, so it was under Muslim occupation for a long time, for for you know, a century plus. Um, and then it was the Muslims were kicked out by the Normans, um, so who are you know obviously from Scandinavia via northern France, um, and were were the uh, and, and many Normans, so like Bohemond and, and Robert of Normandy, and were, were the were the backbone of of, of the of the First Crusade. And so, so it's a lot of of influences from a lot of different places. So it was a kind of cultural melting pot. Lots of Muslims, lots of Byzantines, lots of you know uh, long in the tooth Latin traditions, plus this new Norman influx, and. Um, and it was a very, very, and the Norman kings were very, Norman kings of Sicily were very, uh, you know, get up and go sorts of chaps. And um, so uh, he was, uh, Frederick II was raised in a very strange um, multicultural environment. And so that, so, so the sort of standard black legend about him, which may be correct, is that he was, he was highly cultured, spoke huge numbers of languages. That's certainly true. Um, uh, he was brilliantly educated. Um, uh, but that he 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 didn't really care. He was he he didn't really care about the truth or falsity of religious questions. That he was he was a hedonist. He's accused of having a sort of harem which he carried around with him, um, and uh, he was certainly completely cynical and amoral. I mean, you definitely get that impression. Um, and uh, so and and that he just sort of chuckled about all this kind of papal politics and stuff. And he was he was interested in 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 uh, restoring the authority of the emperors to a, a sort of absolute um, uh, conception of imperial power mm. uh, sort of derived from uh, the, 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 the century plus uh, that, that now preceded him of Western analysis of Justinian's codification of canon law, sorry, canon law, excuse me, of the civil law of Roman law. Um, so, but whether, but whether or not that's, of course, he certainly did create a very centralised state in Italy, in Sicily, but he he often bartered away a lot of imperial power in Germany in order to make sure that that um, that he had the German princes on his side. And he doesn't seem to be very interested in Germany, which fits with his um, with this profile of him as a sort of sort of cynical, sophisticated. Um, uh, Islam admiring, um, uh, very much Mediterranean ruler. He didn't go to Germany that much, and he he quarrelled with with his son that he put in charge of his German affairs for, for for trying to impose imperial authority too much. 
uh, in Germany when he wanted just to keep the German princes happy so you could have some German armies to try and try and punish his enemies in Italy. So, but, but he, so the popes tried to extract various promises from him when they were forced to back him against the delinquent Otto IV. They try, you know, you're going to, you're not going to let um, Sicily and Germany permanently pass to the same, same of your descendants, and you're going to go and jolly well uh, do the crusade. Now, uh, the popes, again, we've spoken about earlier, had one of the things that had really vindicated their their leadership of Christendom was was their association with the Crusades. The fact that the, the most successful Crusade, the First Crusade, is very much seen as a papal expedition led by people who are not kings or emperors, but are the next rank down. And uh, but the emperor and the emperors have been very keen uh, to to sort of regain, reassert their leadership role in Christendom by um, by being seen to be you know great leaders in the Crusades. And this hadn't really worked out very well. The Second Crusade was a damp squib. Um, Frederick Barbarossa um, accidentally drowned on the Third Crusade, um, as we spoke about. Um, so, uh, so it was it was in the emperor's interests to um, to be seen leading crusades. But on the other hand, if the traditional portrait of Frederick II is correct, he's not really very interested in in you know. He's interested in in being seen to do impressive things, but he's not he's not full of zeal for our Lord Jesus Christ and 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 the the holy and life giving cross. Um, uh, so um, so anyway, but he he's uh, when uh, during the so he's struggling in the struggle with uh, with Otto the Fourth and like Otto the Fourth himself, he's keen to make uh, promise pretty much anything in order to uh, try and get. Um, try and get uh, all the things he needs out of the popes in terms of confirming his role as emperor and um, and he uh, which he eventually does um, so he's he's elected uh, king in Germany in 1212 and uh, he's then um, he's then uh, crowned emperor by the Pope in 1220 um, and he promises to go off on crusade and he basically reneges on this promise well he keeps delaying it because he, I don't know if he can't be bothered or whatever it is, but but as a result, the Fifth Crusade is a complete disaster. I mean, there are several, many reasons why the Fifth Crusade was a complete disaster, but it was particularly, it, it was focused on Egypt, but it was, which was quite sensible. Uh, Richard the Lionheart had suggested, in fact, the Fourth Crusade had been supposed to go to Egypt before it got diverted to Constantinople. Um, but, um, uh, but Richard the Lionheart had suggested that, you know, they needed to conquer Egypt because the Byzantines were unreliable and therefore they needed a, a firm, um, base in the east, um, which would allow them to uh, to defend the kingdom of Jerusalem uh, from somewhere a bit more defensible than Jerusalem. So, so, so there was some logic in in focusing on Egypt, but um, uh, and and there were but there were problems with the Fifth Crusade. Um, uh, the Holy See wanted to impose too much direct supervision on it because they were so freaked out by what had gone wrong with the fourth crusade um but the 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 the, the papal legate wasn't necessarily the most brilliant military tactician of all time so in fact it wasn't that great being told how to run a, a military campaign by a cleric um and uh, and um and but they also and so the holy see was kind of looking for someone to blame for the debacle of the fifth crusade but they were also um they were also, but it is also true that they made a number of poor military decisions 
partly because of bad decisions by the papal legate, but also because they were waiting for Frederick II to turn up, who'd sworn until he was blue in the face that he was going to arrive and save the day at any moment, and never arrived. And so, so this this happened. Uh, so this this happened repeatedly, and there were sort of final warnings and final final warnings. And of course, it's also really easy to doubt the motives of the popes because they're kind of like they they're really uncomfortable with this guy being both emperor and king of Sicily anyway. Um, so obviously it's easy to suspect them of wanting an excuse to excommunicate him at the first possible opportunity. But, uh, but I mean, I don't think they really were going that far. But then, of course, they also had the, the cynical restraining factor of the fact that he was very powerful and next door. Um, but eventually he, get, he, he, he sets off to go on crusade finally, having you know, made a horrible mess of the Fifth Crusade. And then he decides, sails off from, from Italy for you know, a few days and then he decides he's feeling really ill and he's got to go home. So he turns his ships around and goes back. And now, you know, and again, there's a, nobody's really sure whether or not he's just taking the, yes, or whether or not he's, um, or whether or not he's, he really was very ill or, or yes, it's not completely clear, but he gets excommunicated for that. And then, and then they sort of say, all right, you can, you can, you can, you know, just, just go on. But, but it, uh, the problem is, yeah, he then, so the, the ex excommunication perversely seems to spur him on, right? He, um, because uh, because it's impossible to go on crusade as an excommunicate because um, because it's an indulgence, right? It's supposed to get rid of your temporal punishment due to your sin. If you're in a state of mortal sin, it's no use, right? You don't need an indulgence in a state of mortal sin. You need to go to confession. Um, and, uh, um, <laughs> I mean, I'm so, not getting anything out of this. <laughs> Well, so, so so he then kind of um, he then seems to have uh, have decided um, that it would be a bit of a laugh to go on crusade now, just to make it just to just to make the crusade ridiculous or something. Well, it, it's not really clear. But he he married the heiress to the kingdom of Jerusalem, but her dad is still alive. But he just like sweeps him aside, and says, "Yeah, I'm now king of Jerusalem. This is this is 1225 by this time. I'm now king of Jerusalem. De jure auxuris, right? Which which means you're king because your wife would be the queen, but it's the Middle Ages and and they're not and and it's a military state the king of jerusalem so she she's not going to be the queen so you're so you're going to be the king um but that but i mean but but he uh, and he has a child by her and really the child should be that should be the heir to the throne not him but he's not really bothered about that and he's very powerful and very wealthy to whatever he likes um so so he's now got this sort of interest in going there because it's kind of his territory now sort of in a slightly dodgy way and uh, but he's excommunicate so it's a bit ridiculous so i mean how can he possibly go on crusade with excommunicate so he decides to go on crusade anyway again you do get the impression he's sort of baiting the pope i mean you've got like um uh it's he's sort of alleged to have said that you know if only he'd been muslim instead muslims have so much more fun so so I mean, he does seem to have been really quite sort of cynical but anyway so, so he, he goes off on crusade um and he gets to the holy land and they don't know what to do with him because he's like, he's like, he's here and he's the emperor and he's got quite a big army, although frankly nothing like as big as it needed to be. And he can't really properly be on crusade and the popes lose it when he goes off on crusade and they excommunicate him again. I know that sounds silly because he's already excommunicated, but, but I mean, obviously you can be excommunicated 
for different reasons, you know, so that in order to, in order to fix the excommunication, you have to fix both the things you're excommunicated for. So it's not like he became even more excommunicate. Um, but I mean, it means that there are now two legal reasons why he's excommunicate. So he has to fix both of them. So the second of them being that he blasphemously went off on crusade when he couldn't go on crusade because he's excommunicate. Um, so, so he gets excommunicated for that as well. And um, so he, 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 he arrives in the Holy Land and uh, he does uh, a bunch of negotiations so so that the local muslim ruler is not is is not really interested he's got his other problems with rival muslim rulers this usual sort of story and he's not interested in having a, a big battle with this emperor and the emperor frederick the second isn't particularly interested in having a battle with 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 the muslims either because he doesn't care about christianity apparently he just wants to show off and and, uh, and so he um so he he negotiates it's really weird he negotiates that jerusalem be and a few other holy places be given back to the crusader state now the, the king of jerusalem at this point is a strip of territory along the coast uh-huh. which was secured by richard the lionheart in the third crusade um and uh, and 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 it's necessary because it can be resupplied from the west by sea. Mm-hmm. So that means that you don't have to go via the Byzantines, who are very unreliable. Of course, Byzantines are at this point under occupation by the Latins, but but they weren't when um, when when Richard the Lionheart created that strip. And anyway, the overland trip is is perilous, uh, very perilous, especially now that Edessa has, has also been lost to Islam. Um, so, so, so the coastal strip was designed to make it make it easier to to fully reestablish the kingdom of Jerusalem at some later point because because Richard the Lionheart had to go home because he didn't have enough troops and then he got killed when he was at home so he didn't he didn't manage to get back. Um, but uh, so so it's weird you've got this strip of, of of coastal area and then you've got the emperor has negotiated Jerusalem back and then a sort of corridor going from the coast to Jerusalem utterly indefensible corridor and part of the deal is that the muslims can still go to Jerusalem and do all their muslim stuff in Jerusalem uh, including that the dome of the rock should remain a mosque um uh, so the dome of the rock is the is the mosque that's that's over the top of the the holy of holies where the holy of holies used to be mm-hmm. in in solomon and later herod's temple um so it's it's a you know very holy place uh, and it had been the headquarters of the knights templar uh, when the kingdom of jerusalem was in possession of jerusalem um and uh, and the christians didn't really you know their sort of cultural architectural history was not top notch and they they just assumed that the dome of the rock was solomon's temple you know they hadn't you know the fact that that's that's like totally impossible and um and it's the wrong shape and uh and all that kind of stuff um uh had not properly occurred to them but the but it was actually the hq of the knights templar that's why the they were called the the knights of the temple yeah. and uh, and so so as a church it was known as the temple of the lords that's what they called the church so and they saw it as as Solomon's temple that had was had become a church and had been occupied by the Muslims, and um, uh, so so anyway, so it was seen as the barons of the King of Jerusalem were, were not happy with this guy who didn't have a proper legal right to the King of Jerusalem anyway, was excommunicate anyway, and he actually he, this whole thing was a ridiculous publicity stunt as far as they were concerned, and 
it was no use to them because they could the, the corridor connecting Jerusalem to the coast was indefensible. Jerusalem was indefensible. He'd only negotiated it back for a sort of limited term of years after which the Muslims were supposed to be allowed to retake it, which they did in very brutal and horrible fashion. Um, uh, so, so in fact, the, Richard the Lionheart hadn't taken Jerusalem precisely because he thought that he had enough troops there to garrison the coast or enough troops to garrison Jerusalem. And if he garrisoned Jerusalem, which he would have to do, they'd lose the coast and then they'd lose Jerusalem because they'd be cut off from their supply lines. And so it would be completely pointless. And the same problem still existed. Um, but Frederick II didn't care. He just wanted to have his day in Jerusalem and look good and uh, and then go home. So the barons were furious, the local ecclesiastics were furious. Um, so they wouldn't have anything to do with Frederick II's crusade, which was really a sort of shabby piece of interreligious dialogue rather than a <laughs> rather than a crusade. And um, so he, um, uh, but he, he has his fun. And again, it really does look like he's trying to annoy the Pope as much as possible. So Frederick II negotiates his, he rents back Jerusalem from the Muslims. Uh, um, uh, he goes to Jerusalem with with the the Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights, who are the sort of third largest of the of the of the military religious orders. Um, but they're mostly they're sort of German. They're the German national military religious order, and they, in the end, they most of their activity ends up being at Frederick II's prompting, actually, um, in the Baltic, where um, on what would now be the coast the baltic coast of poland and lithuania um uh, and, and 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 a little bit of germany used to be a lot more of germany but then they lost two world wars and and and, and they lost all that territory of east what's called east prussia but um but they they that, that was all territory inhabited by pagans uh good old-fashioned sort of barbaric you know, worships, uh, which pay the, the, the bolts, they're known as the Prussians. There's this people called the bolts, one of the branches of whom are the Prussians. So, so the later Prussians people talk about are actually, are actually just Germans who ethnically cleansed the original Prussians who were, who were not German at all. They're cousins of the Lithuanians. And, um, and, but they used to worship snakes. Oh, not, not good. And uh, and they were they were uh, they were they were quite you know hostile and violent towards the uh, bordering German territory. So Indiana Frederick II Jones would not like that religion. Absolutely, yes, particularly worrying religion from his point of view. And uh, and so Frederick II uh, invited the Teutonic Knights to um, uh, conquer that territory off the Prussians, uh, which they did with extreme prejudice, um, and uh, and they could rule it themselves because the, the the immediately subordinate rulers to the emperor in Germany were basically completely autonomous and effectively sovereign. So um, so they they got to create their own ecclesiastical state out of ethnic cleansing <laughs> on the on the uh, the Baltic coast. Uh, Hitler liked them because you know he thought yeah going east and murdering huge numbers of people for the for Germany. So he thought yeah um, and uh, I'm not sure that was what the Teutonic Knights thought they were doing, but but certainly their 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 history is somewhat shady and difficult to defend from a Christian point of view, yeah. uh, and this comes up again at the Council of Constance, but that's way off at the moment. Um, but anyway, so the Teutonic Knights they like the Emperor and they're very into being German, even if the Emperor isn't very German. Um, uh, um, he's got a German surname, and uh, so they um, so so the only guy, the only ecclesiastic of any description who's willing to hang around with Frederick the Second in the Holy Land is the Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights. Yeah. So he goes with um, Frederick the Second to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 
and there really to piss off the Pope in the it, it, the ex twice excommunicate uh, um, Holy Roman Emperor uh, shunned by every every ecclesiastic other than the Grand Master John Knights crowns himself with his own hand oh, wow. in the Holy Sepulchre. Um, uh, uh, that and that's on the the 18th of March 1229, and and it is real kind of antichrist stuff. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, I mean, he. It's almost as if he's like deliberately trying to. He's trying to. There was a, there was a medieval legend that there would be a, before the antichrist there would be a last emperor who'd be the greatest of all Roman emperors, and he would reconquer the frontiers of the empire at the death of Trajan, and he would finally, at the end of his glorious career, go to the Jerusalem, and then he would die in ecstasy in the Holy Sepulchre and lay his um, lay his crown on the tomb of the Lord and die in ecstasy. And this basically kind of goes back to, uh, I think it goes back to the pseudo-Methodian apocalypse, which is a, which is a, is what it says on the tin. It's a, it's a, spuriously attributed apocalyptic account of, of the end times uh, from from uh, I don't know the eighth century or something but um uh Dumbarton Oaks published it in English if you're interested um and uh, but the um yeah so uh and then he goes back to Europe and uh and sort of laughs at the Pope um and uh, so so the Pope's hate Frederick the Second, with every fibre of their being, and um, and 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 he's and he's he vexes them and and, and besieges them in Italy and and uh, and and this goes on for years. And basically, the popes eventually develop this kind of "we will destroy this dynasty if it is the last thing that we do." So they 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 hate the Hohenstaufen at this point, and they've made a mockery of 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 the the Pope's number one PR thing, the Crusades, and they've they've you know they're a massive threat to the position of the popes, and um, so the um, so this is all building up to uh, Lyon one so they decide uh so, so uh, he's of course the standard thing which dodgy temporal rulers with christian pretensions do when they've got problems with the pope is appeal to ecumenical councils so because because you always it's always unclear whether or not um you know for a long time until vatican one really although the popes for a long time make it an automatic excommunication offense to appeal over the pope's head to an ecumenical council it's still a standard armory in the a weapon in the armory of people who don't like the popes at any given time and um so obviously frederick the second saying oh you know it's all so complicated and the popes are being so nasty to me and i'm such a good boy and they keep excommunicating me for unfair reasons and and they're just picking on me ever since i was a kid and uh, and and you know someone is still need ecumenical council sorts out and uh, but of course he's really just trying to you know kick out some dust and um so so innocent the fourth uh is like okay we'll have an ecumenical council and we'll have it where you can't uh, where you can't get anybody to come where, where you can't you can't control it and so frederick frederick the second is like you know is now keen that this shouldn't happen so he's very keen to try and avoid anybody getting to uh the, the first council of Lyon. and um so as a result the First Council of Lyon's lots of Italian and French and Spanish and English bishops uh, and, not, and not so many bishops from Germany um, <clears throat> because the uh, because Frederick II is, is keen to prevent it from happening and, and indeed to try and prevent Italian bishops from going there. So, <clears throat> but all this, as you can see, is, is kind of a little bit squalid 
um, and uh, the the there is a, there is actually a, a, the the Latin Emperor of Constantinople is present at the first Council of Lyon um, because they're not doing very well as we discussed and they're kind of please help us come and help us because because Innocent the Third had eventually concluded that there's nothing you could do now all the way back uh, um, uh, he, there's nothing you can do about the fact that they they sacked Constantinople we better make the best of it now and and you know just try and turn it into a regularize it and turn it into a into a, a a Latin state and hope that the Greeks eventually give up and and become good boys and girls and uh, that didn't work that just made it worse but I mean isn't they didn't really know what to do but 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 as as, as we've seen it, it wasn't a success and so the the Baldwin the second the um the uh, uh, the the Latin Emperor of Constantinople was kind of generally wandering around Europe trying to please come and help us you know because nobody really wants to be terribly involved in it doesn't have the same ring to it you know I mean it's hard enough recruiting you know large armies for the Crusades by this point because of the long series of non-successes but but the the much more tawdry and tainted cause of the Latin Empire of Constantinople was very difficult to recruit for but um so but the uh hughes if i remember rightly he um he sort of says you know it's really clear when you look at, at, at leon one that the gregorian reform movement is over um that there's no it's not some it's not going to happen uh, you know you know it's, the zeal has gone the papacy is now a well-established international institution and uh, it has its revenue streams and it has its position and its legal system and it's like all these kind of non-national institutions uh, it has the, these problems of sort of corruption and self-servingness and all this kind of stuff and they've really become embedded by this point so so we're on the turning point now where up to lateran for the papacy is definitely part of the solution whereas you're beginning to see at this period the papacy is now kind of part of the problem um, and uh, so there's a lot of technical canonical measures in in the decrees of of Leon one but the main the main thrust the, main, the most important thing about it is is and there's a kind of please help the Latin Emperor in Constantinople because he's really desperate chaps uh, appeal in there um, but the main thing is that the ex very long and angry excommunication by the council and deposition of the Emperor Frederick II so uh, and this this sort of thing is quite important because from from a sort of post Vatican II perspective because people uh, sort of sort of more liberal people want to have their cake and eat it they want to treat the prudential decisions of the Second Vatican Council as if they're inspired by God and anyone who doesn't agree with them is is uh, a wicked schismatic right. <laughs> Um, uh, and at the same time, they, they're not interested in the prudential decisions of any previous council. So if you said, oh, well, given the prudential decisions of Vatican II are so important, presumably you agree that the spiritual power has the right to depose emperors and other temporal rulers. They're like, oh, um, of course not. Oh, that's all. Yeah. But I mean, that's what, you know, Leon I did. So, you know, why are you not a dreadful schismatic unless you agree with Leon I deposing Frederick II? Uh, you know, you, should, you ought to agree with Lateran IV wiping out the Albigensians and, and all sorts of other things done by uh, ecumenical councils. But yes, so it's, it's a very thundering list of the crimes of Frederick II. And, uh, and, and, and it says that he, he uh, what's it, he says, I wrote it down, what's it? He allowed the name of Muhammad to be publicly proclaimed day and night in the Lord's temple. So that's, that's, a, that's a, um, 
that's a, a reference back to his his dodgy deal by which he rented back Jerusalem from the Muslims, um, and uh, so so yeah so so it's 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 basically closing off that that option mm-hmm. of of appealing supposedly over the Pope's head to an ecumenical council. Uh, it, he gets thunderously deposed and it's communicated by an ecumenical council. He has a very able uh, Thaddeus of Suessa, very able representative at the council who tries to sort of do deals and 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 cause trouble for innocent the fourth and prevent this from happening but innocent the fourth manages to get it done anyway and uh, so there we are is this his third excommunication i lost count uh yeah i suppose so. i mean he probably had a lot more than that by then it, yeah it does get rather confusing um uh so frederick the so that's kind of leon two leon one excuse me frederick the second then dies uh in 1250 and so just five years later and uh, that the then ensues, uh, so the Holy See continues its its vendetta to the death against the Hohenstaufen dynasty, and uh, and and there literally to the death, and and there uh, and there then ensues what's called the Great Interregnum, because um, the 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 war between the papally backed people and the Hohenstaufens and uh, and and everybody else who thinks they might have a shot at becoming emperor because of the chaos goes on for basically 15 you know, 25 years 24 years um uh and um so there's no no generally accepted uh emperor in germany in fact nobody is nobody is crowned emperor until the following century but there isn't even anyone who's elected king of the germans or king of the romans um uh in for this 25 year period um uh, because of this huge feud between the popes and the remaining descendants legitimate and illegitimate of Frederick II in which they sort of hound the Hohenstaufen to destruction and and this finally this 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 interregnum finally ends the year before the second council of Lyon so in in uh, 1273 um Rudolf of Habsburg is elected as the as the as the emperor or the emperor elect the king of the Romans the king of Germany and he is um he's the first Habsburg ever to be elected emperor so this is the beginning of the imperial career of the Habsburg dynasty who will remain uh em- imperial one way or another re- remain the holy roman emperors from the 15th century uh, so, so they, they they managed to get two emperors or uh, two emperors elect anyway um in the 13th century and then the second one gets murdered by a cousin who he defended in a really bizarre incident uh, which ruins their imperial career his sister goes nuts and 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 massacres everybody who's more closely related to that cousin than is related to her because she's so consumed she's a connie corleone figure um and uh, so she um she uh yeah but so there's then a big gap where the habsburgs lose control of the empire until the 15th century when they get it back again and they get their first chap actually crowned holy roman emperor uh, the Emperor Frederick III, and then from that point onwards, they are—they have an unbroken line of, of Habsburg emperors uh, into the 18th century. When there's a brief blip, whether in the War of Austrian Succession, and then they get it back again, and until 1806, when when the Frederick, uh, when uh, Francis II, the last Holy Roman Emperor elect, is is sort of bullied into abdicating by Napoleon. But before he does that, he makes himself. 
hereditary emperor of Austria in a slightly dodgy legal move, but there's nobody to complain to because the empire has been suspended by his abdication. So, so then the uh, so then the Habsburgs remain Austrian emperors, including that em- exercise of the imperial veto that we talked about mm-hmm. at the conclave of 1903. Uh, so they they seem to be claiming some sort of Roman rights there um, uh, up until uh, the um, up until the well the death of the Emperor Karl in the 1920s. So um, so the Habsburgs have a very long imperial career, but it begins the year before the Second Council of Lyon as as the as the, the sort of the conclusion exhausted conclusion of, of this great interregnum now this is a big problem which the popes don't really appreciate um uh rw southern points this out um a historian he says some you know i mean if the popes can't control these emperors who can they control okay they're very powerful but their imperial credentials are entirely piggybacking on the pope mm-hmm. right they're not you know, they don't have Constantinople. They don't have long lineages going back to to the ancient world. Um, you know, they're German potentates with a fancy title, which they rely on the popes for, right? So that they're, they're almost they're set up to be controllable by the popes, mm-hmm. and the popes are terrified that they're going to do what the Byzantine emperors had done and and make themselves rather than the pope the kind of real leaders of Christendom. I mean, the other way of looking at that is that the the, the the emperors very much were, certainly in the temporal sphere, the leaders of Christendom, and the popes had kind of stolen that role um, in the 11th century. That's the other sort of more imperial way of looking at things. But the popes were, you know, they were locked in this struggle over who leads Christendom. And what they didn't appreciate is is that they, they, sh- they needed to be able to do, they needed to work out a modus vivendi with these emperors because... Because they they had the emperors were invested in the papacy. They needed the papacy for their own plausibility, right? So 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 it was, the popes needed to find a way of working with these emperors. Because um, if they didn't, uh, what they were going to get instead, they didn't have any kind of holdover in the way that they did over the emperors. But they didn't seem to appreciate that. They were just fixed on destroying the Hohenstaufen and keeping the keeping the emperors under the thumb. Now, I understand that because, I mean, you know, they, the Hohenstaufen were bloody dangerous, very worrying, uh, overweening, but but uh, but it, it was med- medium-term stuff. Do you see? I mean, they, they didn't, they didn't realise how, how, what a danger they were creating in these national monarchies that were going to become the great powers in Europe instead of the emperors once the Pope successfully broke the back of, of the imperial power in Europe. They ended up in the hands of these national monarchs, who they just had even less control over. So, so they didn't, you know, they, they didn't really get that. Anyway, so the Habsburgs get their hands on the imperial crown, at least as far as Germany goes. And but in the meantime, uh, the the Latin Empire of Constantinople had completely given up the ghost. So uh, in um, in twelve seventy. Where are we? 1276, 1261. The Byzantines reconquered um, Constantinople. Mm-hmm. Now, when when the uh, when the um, Latin Empire had been created, uh, the lots of the Byzantines scattered and created these little successor states in various different places. And um, the one of those successor states that was most successful was the Empire of Nicaea. 
uh, which you know, wasn't much of an empire; it's very small. But um, but it, um, and, and this had built up and built up and, and and absorbed another one of the successor states. And eventually, this guy from an old Byzantine aristocratic family, the Paleologoi, Michael Paleologus, ends up as co-emperor with the Emperor John the Fourth of the Empire of Nicaea. And um, and he, uh, who's just a little kid, he he he. So this often happens in Byzantine history. Uh, you'll get like a a, a well-established dynasty, and and the, the a, a, a relatively successful emperor will die with a with an infant heir, and then some general stroke hard man will, you know, marry his mum or or sort of infiltrate himself into the palace and get himself made co-emperor, and then. And and if that happens and you're the kid, you know, things are, uh, uh, it's, it's a bit nerve wracking. You know, you want to avoid picnics next to the canal and, uh, and things like that. <laughs> so, and, and John the fourth, poor lad, is is unfortunately one of the people in this sort of position. Michael the eighth, he's the founder of the Paleologan Imperial Dynasty, who are the last imperial dynasty of Constantinople. But he's not a very nice man. And um, he's cynical and ruthless and brutal. And... Um, in 1261, I mean, the Byzantines were on their way to reconquering Constantinople anyway. They actually conquer it because somebody leaves a door open in the walls or something ridiculous. I think it's kind of an accident and some some foraging party of Byzantines is nearby and they're like, is that door actually open? I think it is, you know. And uh, and the uh, so anyway, they get word back to Michael VIII so that he can hastily um, come back and have a dramatic you know, ceremonial entrance into the city. But in fact, it's already been taken, um, sort of in a sort of rather speculative, opportunistic way. Um, but uh, on the uh, occasion of taking back Constantinople, Michael VIII uh, basically locks up John the Fourth. He's like, "Well, I've taken back Constantinople now." He may have had a bit of prestige as being the sort of heir of the dynasty, but it was, you know, a dynasty in exile. And I think taking back Constantinople is enough to establish my credentials. So he, uh, in in traditional Byzantine fashion, has um, uh, John IV's eyes gouged out uh, on his 11th birthday, which also happens to be Christmas Day, which is really nice. So that kind of shows you a little bit of the of the temperament of Michael VIII and uh, and and uh, poor old uh, blinded 11 year old John the fourth is is sent away to a monastery for the rest of his life um uh so yeah so he wasn't a nice man he was certainly willing to do whatever he thought was necessary in order to uh, achieve his goals and uh, so he takes control of Constantinople he's now he's now Michael the eighth emperor of the Romans um uh, re- uh, back in poor old, rather damaged Constantinople, and um, now the Greeks. So you now get a funny position, which which slightly defines the rest of the history of the Byzantine Empire, which is that the Greeks now hate the Latins. I mean, that they despised and looked down on the Latins, and they were there was some occasions when it looked like they might have a slightly more friendly attitude, but it you know generally didn't go well, as we talked about with Andronicus the first and the massacre of the Latins. But now they just hate the Latins, and um, but the uh, at the same time they Michael the Eighth is like we don't have a lot of territory left here, lads, um, uh, and. You know, a lot of people are looking hungrily at Constantinople. The idea that it can never fall has been, you know, refuted in 1204, and um, and we're we're in trouble. And now one of so we need we need to end this schism thing because it, it basically provides a standing excuse for any 
opportunistic Western adventurer to come and try and steal Constantinople. So, so Michael IV becomes single-mindedly determined to end the Great Schism for pretty much cynical realpolitik reasons. Um, but the population of, of Constantinople are less disposed to accept that than they ever have been before. But, the, but one of the big things that's really breathing down the neck of the emperors is uh, this guy Charles of Anjou. So Charles of Anjou is the younger brother of Saint Louis the Ninth of France. So uh, Charles of Anjou uh, is the younger brother of uh, Louis the Ninth of France, Saint Louis, but he's not very like his brother. He's a nasty piece of work. In fact, lots of people have commented on what a similar character he had to John VIII. And, um, but for a long time during this great feud with the Hohenstaufen, because the Sicily had originally been given by the Gregorian reform popes to, of course, they conquered it for themselves, but it was given to the Normans uh, legally by the popes uh, because the, the popes thought, well, you know, they're a bit of a bit trouble, these Normans, but they're also not the Byzantines and they're not the German emperors. So it's quite good to have a kind of, legal legally anyway a client state that isn't one of those two uh to our south um and uh, so technically uh sicily is a vassal state of the holy see so so they're like okay frederick the second we'll just take it off you and give it to somebody else and they certainly don't want it going to any more hohenstaufen so they're, they're in long negotiations with louis the ninth to try and get um his brother who's seen as an able military commander, which he is, but he's just not a very nice man, um, uh, uh, Charles of Anjou, to take over Sicily. And um, Louis IX is uh, not that keen, really. I mean, Louis IX is very pious, never does anything to offend the popes, really, himself. But he doesn't... He's He is, as many Catholics increasingly become, uh, as, the, as the zeal of the Gregorian reform movement turns into a sort of self-serving institutional instinct of self-preservation uh, over the over the later middle ages that many zealous catholics are kind of like yes holy father no holy father of course you know and thank you for your teaching holy father and uh, and that's very interesting about your prudential judgments and i'll take that under advisement um <laughs> and um, <laughs> so the um, so Luther doesn't really want to get involved in this terribly but eventually um, they sort of talk him round, and um, uh, and he agrees to have his brother uh, become the, the the nominal king of Sicily, uh, well, well, the actual new king of Sicily. So Charles of Anjou takes over Sicily, the king of Sicily, which includes both the island of Sicily and uh, the part of Italy south of Rome. And uh, he's a pretty brutal guy, and uh, he's not massively popular with the locals, but he doesn't really care. And um, and he he thinks the reconquest of Constantinople by the Byzantines gives him a marvelous opportunity to take Constantinople. So he thinks I could become a kind of you know great Mediterranean power by um, recreating the Latin Empire with me in in Constantinople, already controlling southern Italy and Sicily. It'll it, it will recreate. Uh, an earlier stage in the Byzantine Empire, make it much more powerful and be a base from which uh, crusade type expansion could be done. So so this is not the kind of zealous, we're doing it even though it's going to bankrupt us and probably kill us, early sort of crusading thing. This is a kind of much more like old Bohemond um, uh, in the First Crusade who much more had his eye on, on, on interesting territorial possibilities in the East. 
So Michael VIII is particularly concerned about Charles of Anjou, and Charles of Anjou becomes a big problem for the papacy. They've sort of created another monster. They're very good at creating monsters, the popes. And, um, and, and they've now got him breathing down their necks, and he is very keen to manipulate and control the papacy in order to further his temporal ambitions. So from this point onwards, uh, for a big chunk of the 13th century, um, papal elections are massively being influenced and cajoled, and cardinals are being bribed and threatened into doing the will of Charles of Anjou. Uh, and um, the and, and the fact that it's become a sort of um, ecclesiastical FIFA, the papacy, uh, are you familiar with FIFA? It's a notorious institution in in countries which are more into association football. Mm. FIFA is the, the regulatory body for football internationally and it's um it's, you know, similar in character to, you know, the International Olympic Committee or the European Union. No, into- I was literally thinking because soccer, <laughs> you know, football over there, but I was actually going you know, if I say soccer, I'm going to look like an idiot. He's going to say something that's, you know, bigger than that. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bigger? What do you mean? Oh, <laughs> parochial perspective. Anyway, but the, the um, anyway, yes. So, so uh, it, these kind of inter- it's become the Holy See has become kind of one of these. There's some particularly unedifying stuff. You know, I mean, it gets worse and worse as the Middle Ages go on. But, but I mean, you can already see it. Like, there's a huge row between the saintly Bishop of Lincoln, Robert Gross Test, and Innocent the um, Fourth, uh, because Innocent the Fourth wants to force him to have one of his nephews as as a canon of the See of Lincoln, and and Robert Gross Test is like, what? Um, and uh, so, in fact, Robert Gross Test had lots of miracles at his tomb after he died, but he never got canonized because the Holy See never forgave him for for um, defying them over this particular little act of nepotism. Um, and uh, so the, um, yeah, so I mean, you can see things are not going great. And and so as a result, papal elections, they become big, you know, financial, you know, it's like voting where the Olympics are going to be next, you know, you know, there's lots of, lots of, um, lots of money changing hands and, you know, and, and holidays in in uh, that, that weren't entirely paid for by the you know and honey traps and god knows what else and uh, i mean uh, i'm probably exaggerating at this stage although it certainly comes true later on and um uh, but the the so so blessed um gregory the 10th who holds the second council of leon uh, there's there's a three-year papal interregnum prior to his election just because because the the papal elections become such a nightmare so uh and and this this dreadful charles of anjou chap is trying to involve himself as much as he can now the previous pope is this guy clement the fourth and he is is trying to deal with michael the eighth so michael the eighth is like charles of anjou is like absolutely raring to go to try and reconquer constantinople i gotta stop this from happening i need to end the great schism and so he he basically writes to the pope and says name your price i'll do anything i don't care i'm not that interested in all this religious stuff he doesn't say that but but um but but you know i don't care what just give me have you read brideshead revisited yes you know there's that guy rex mottram and he's he wants to he'll believe anything in order to marry julia <laughs> and uh and you know so so cordelia um, Ju- um uh, julia's sister makes up all these fake Catholic doctrines to see whether or not she could get Rex to agree to believe them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, so I mean, uh, Michael VIII is similarly flexible in his theological principles. And um, so, and the Holy See does what it has often done, which is, which is not 
not very helpful really which is when they see the byzantines in a really weak position they're like right let's let's milk this for everything that's worth so they they and it's not a very helpful long-term solution you really need to work out what the the people who care about theology in byzantium what their problems are and which how much of those problems are, are actual wicked heresy and how much is just a misunderstanding and it's a really difficult job and it does get done properly at the council of florence later in the middle ages but but um but at this stage, they just send this very fire-breathing, it's called the Profession of Faith of Michael Paleologos. And they send this kind of, the Latins are right about everything, you name it, the Latins are right about it. And uh, so there's no attempt to try to explain how what the Greeks have, have how the Greeks have expressed it is this means the same as how the Latins express it. It's just it's, they've used different words. None of that is just kind of like and purgatory and suffrages for the dead and the filioque, which is really great, and the Pope can do whatever he likes and you got to take it. And uh, so I mean, it's not it's not yeah. I mean, it's all true, but it's um, it's it's not the most brilliant diplomatic move of all time. Anyway, but and so Michael VIII is kind of like okay, well I'm you know I'm willing to sign up anything you put in front of me but i do do need something i can sell to the lads back home here and um uh, you know because it's it's no it can be no good if i i'm a catholic but nobody else is i mean that's not really going to help mm. and um so so he's trying to sort of persuade the holy see that this that, that slightly more constructive approach might be required um and um but then uh clement the fourth dies and then there's a three-year papal interregnum. So that, that kind of gets kicked into the long grass until uh, Gregory X becomes Pope. Now, thankfully, he's blessed Gregory X. He's a saintly fellow, and he is very keen to actually reconcile the Byzantines. Um, and he is extremely resistant. In fact, he wasn't a cardinal. He, he's, he's one of the last few popes to be elected that were not cardinals. Um, there's a few more still to come before, after him, but he's, he's one of the last. <clears throat> and he's um, he he'd actually spent a long time in the East um, uh, doing papal business, and uh, before he was elected pope, and so he he appreciated you know the East a bit more, and he really wanted to see the Byzantines reconciled, and he was not interested in Charles of Anjou's schemes to have a second bloody sack of Constantinople, and um, and he didn't. Um, uh, and and so he's he wants to actually reconcile the actual Byzantines with their actual emperor. Now now Michael VIII, but and he appreciates more than Clement the Fourth did that it's no good just getting an emperor who will sign anything for political purposes to sign something that nobody else in Byzantium agrees with. And also uh, Michael VIII is in a very sticky position ecclesiastically because um, contrary to this to the the spineless way in which the Byzantine clergy are often depicted, um, uh, they, they, there was a lot of uh, anger about what he'd done to that poor boy, John the Fourth, and uh, so there was there was a um, uh, <clears throat> there was some a sort of schism inside the Byzantine Church, which had gone on for a while over the misbehaviour of, of Michael the Eighth over that. So Michael VIII was, nobody in Byzantium was under any illusion that Michael VIII was a holy guy whose theological opinion we should follow very carefully, right? So, so, um, so, uh, so Gregory X realised that, that, that a bit more negotiation uh, was, uh, was needed over this. Now, um, <clears throat> the, unfortunately, the sitting patriarch Constantinople was not at all keen on reunion. Um, and um, uh, so in the end, um, 
Michael VIII gets a, an ex-patriarch Constantinople to go along off to um, go to uh, the Second Council of Lyon, which is um, again being held in Lyon because it keeps it safe from um, from trouble in the empire. Um, he sends he sends off uh, the, the ex-patriarch Constantinople and another Eastern bishop with a load of uh, what's called um, uh, what do you call them? Uh, uh, procurations so basically letters saying uh, these guys are allowed to vote on our behalf now uh, Hughes estimates it at very high at like 500 procurations from Eastern bishops and 50 procurations from Eastern metropolitans um, but uh, it's a bit nominal because there's only there's only actually a very small Byzantine delegation with a lot of bits of paper mm -hmm. um, uh, so but I mean, it's better than the "here's a list of humiliating demands which you will publicly profess" approach of Clement the Fourth. But it's still not what what you might want. So, so in uh, when we finally get to the Council of Florence at the very end of the Middle Ages, um, you have you have hundreds of Byzantine delegates uh, come to the Council of Florence um, to negotiate the reunion on that occasion. So this is this is a much smaller business and of course it's a very very long way from Constantinople of course usually Florence is, is much more accessible from a Byzantine point of view um, uh, so the um, so they come uh, and, and, and John Pali um, sorry, Michael Paleologa signs the um, signs this profession of faith and they, they bring that with them and uh, as I say it deals with all the main contested points but um, uh, but the um, they do actually uh, issue a formal definition of the filioque. Um, now, now, the filioque had already been asserted um, in conciliar creeds, Lateran four, before, um, but this was, it hadn't been, in when it was originally inserted, it was by the third council of Toledo back in the late sixth century local Spanish council. Mm -hmm. um, and then it sort of snuck its way into the Roman liturgy through the back door at the coronation of St. Henry II. So, so in fact, I mean, it, it, had, it had crept up somewhat unawares um, uh, into dogmatic status uh, in the West. Um, <clears throat> so this is the first time that it's fully and sort of aggressively proclaimed. And um, <clears throat> now they do make some attempt to uh some attempt to make it clear it's on the, the the reunion is is formally proclaimed on the 6th of july 1274 um and they do make some attempt to deal with byzantine concerns um let me find for you the the actual text of the definition so um but not nothing like as much as, as is done at the Council of Florence. We profess faithfully and devout, devotedly that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, not as from two principles, but as from one principle, not by two spirations, but by one single spiration. This, the Holy Roman Church, mother and mistress of all the faithful, has till now professed, preached and taught, and this she firmly holds preachers, professors and teachers. This is the unchangeable and true belief of the Orthodox fathers and doctors, Latin and Greek alike. But because some, on account of ignorance of the said indisputable truth, have fallen into various errors, we, wishing to close the way to such errors with the approval of the Sacred Council, condemn and reprove all who presume to deny that the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, all rashly to assert that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son as from two principles, and not from one. So that that repeated clarification as from two principles, not from one principle. Sorry, as 
not so excuse me heresy not as from two <laughs> principles but as from one principle uh, that that repeated assertion um is is shows that there's some attempt there to understand why the greeks are scandalized by this mm. and 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 you'll often see um when people express the filioque diagrammatically, which is probably a stupid idea in the first place, but when they express the, the filioque diagrammatically, you'll see that this this two principles heresy is actually often um, often uh, put in there. So you'll you'll see like a um, uh, you know father, son, Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. right sort of diagram, and that is that is not the doctrine of the church, and. Um, and of course, it says in that definition that um, that uh, that it's it's the unchanging belief about the Greek and the Latin fathers. That's true, but they the Greek fathers don't express it that way for reasons we talked about when we were doing Constantinople four, and um, and you know some 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 concession to the fact that they don't express it that way, and some explanation of what's going on there would have been helpful and does appear in Florence, um, uh, because the, the longer they take to do that, the more the problem becomes entrenched, the more it's just, the more it's just hatred of the Latins mm -hmm. uh, and bitterness on the part of the Byzantines, um, rather than rather than a an actually soluble theological problem. And, and one of the problems, one of the reasons why it's kind of dealt with this, where Clement the Fourth, you know, just sends a list of things for submission. One of the problems is, every time we try and fix the Great Schism, we get a bit clearer about what the teaching is and we define it in order to try and make it clear and reassure the Byzantines and try and fix it. But that then means we have a definition and th th that obviously we can't go back on and, and shouldn't and, and because it's true. Um, but that then means there's less, you can't make that concession again. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, because the, the, the solemn definition of the church are irreformable. You can't, you, you, you've got to get the so you can't just have a council where everybody turns up and discusses things you end up like as as when we get to florence you have this problem you have to have a delegation of people who are actually schismatics having discussions with a delegation from the actual catholic church outside of and alongside of the council and then you agree a formula which they're going to be happy with and then you have the council promulgate it and only actually at that point are the greek delegates part of the council but obviously if you really rub their noses in it beforehand they're just going to leave in a in a furious temper right so so it gets and, and that gets more and more and more difficult to arrange the longer it goes on or the longer the schism goes on so anyway so 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 you because i mean this 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 the other way that Florence later says it's okay to express the filioque and that wouldn't have caused the problem, linguistic problems that the term filioque did, is that the spirit proceeds from the father through the son, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's the true doctrine. But in Western art, I mean, you've got to give it to the Orthodox on this point. In Western art, that is not something which is, is, is preserved very uh, you often. So you'll see images of the Trinity of, uh, like there's a very beautiful um, uh, image of the Trinity uh, that was done for for the Carthusian monastery uh, near Avignon in the um, uh, in the was it the fifteenth or fourteenth century, but it's it's some, um, but it, it has some, um, I think it's the fourteenth century, but it but it has um, the father and the son as identically aged, identical figures. You can only tell who the son is because he's on the right of the father, um, and then you have the, the Holy Spirit as a dove, and his wings are outstretched. Um, so that the the tip of each wing is 
from the perspective of the viewer in front of the center of the lips of the two figures who represent the father and the son right now that's that's very beautiful but but the problem is that it, it does it does seem to kind of imply a two principles not one principle understanding of the of the filioque which is precisely what the greeks are worried about so so the fact that they say this shows at least that they're um that they're you know that there's some understanding that that, that that the greeks have some legitimate concerns that need to be dealt with and and that 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 builds up more at the council of florence but but with every year that passes with the situation unresolved the situation gets worse now ostensibly after leon two, the situation is resolved um uh, because there's now a reunion but it's very much being imposed and pretty brutally by michael the eighth and uh, fortunately there is one very holy man who is backing the union who's this guy john beckus who's a very esteemed uh theologian in constantinople who doesn't approve of, of the reunion um john beckus sorry john beckus uh, michael the eighth uh, as is his style locks him up for not having agreed to, for not agreeing with the reunion and um and but he gives him a load of um a load of books by fathers but he gets like come on lads give me arguments in favor of the western positions you know patristic texts i don't care just give me lots of books right beckus here's your reading for the next 50 years enjoy bang um and uh, but beckus does actually read the books and he's like oh gosh uh wow i think they might actually be right um uh, there's there's a there's a very good article about this in communio by a guy called Peter Gilbert, who's an uh, uh, American Orthodox writer, um, who's a, who's like the world expert on John Beckus, and um, he has a blog with some tra translations that he's done of Beckus, um, of his writings. But he, he he wrote an article which is worth looking at if, if you need the executive summary that was in uh, the um, journal Communio, which I'm not unreservedly endorsing. Um, uh, the um, uh, uh, called not just an anthologist. Is, is the title is about Beckus and the fact that he has a really sophisticated theological engagement with and uh, and, and and it's really interesting how he comes to understand that the filioque is in fact if not perfectly expressed from a Greek point of view is is the doctrine of the fathers as as Leon too says it is and uh, so he is, so Michael VIII is like oh great right get him out of prison make him patriarch of Constantinople so so the year after um, uh, Leon II uh, Beckus is made patriarch of Constantinople and Beckus you know works really hard to try and ensure that the um, the union of Leon II succeeds however uh, it doesn't and I better say why because it won't come in directly to the next thing that we do and it'll get too diffuse um, but before I say that I should just say um, uh, some other things that were done by the council. There's lots more sort of canonical uh, fixes in the decrees of the council. Um, uh, the, um, the the profession of faith of Michael Paleologus is often included as if it was something promulgated by the council. Uh, I mean, it counts as extraordinary solemn teaching anyway because it's used as a condition of readmission to the church. But but whether it counts as as, some, as an act of the council, it was certainly read out to the council. But mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and it includes all these other issues like unleavened bread and 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 papal jurisdiction and um and purgatory and stuff like that 
uh, which which have arisen between the the east and the west, and um, uh, it, it, its passages on papal jurisdiction are actually quite important for some of these funny ideas that people have been floating recently that you could separate the supreme pontificate from the see of Rome. There's uh, that there's there's some some phrasing there which which seems to exclude that idea. Um, uh, but there's even even clearer phrasing in Vatican One excluding that idea. But get onto that and do Vatican one in 2024 sometime um and uh, the uh, but um uh yes um they also the um uh there's a there's a constitution of uh leon ii called ubi periculum uh which is designed to deal with these crazy long papal interregnums um which have preceded blessed uh gregory x's reign and that creates the conclave so that's where so we've already back in the reign of nicholas ii back in the uh, 11th century got cardinals being the the clerical exclusive clerical voters in papal elections but now you have this thing of the conclave where wherever the pope dies you got whatever it is 10 days of mourning or something get to wherever the pope died and if you don't get there too late sorry now everyone has to be locked into a room in the and that's where conclave comes from that's what it means locked in um uh, where in the place where the pope died and uh, and then you know they they're given they're given a few, you know, decent meals a day for a certain length of time. And if they don't, then they're only allowed one meal a day. And then if they, if they delay even longer, they're only allowed bread and water. And no one's allowed to communicate with them and all this kind of stuff. And so so all these really heavy duty measures, which have accumulated over the centuries surrounding papal elections, they come from this, you know, fiferization of the papacy and, and poor old blessed uh, Gregory X's desperate attempt to, to undo the consequences of this. So, so, so this is another obviously major reform instituted at the Second Council of Lyon. Um, also, elections in general have become a big problem because the popes are constantly intervening in, uh, in local uh, episcopal and, and other appointments, uh, not always in a savoury way, as we saw with uh, Robert Grosteste and um, Innocent the Fourth, um, it's become a, like a tidal wave of appeals to Rome because everyone thinks, "Oh, I lost out on getting getting to be bishop of that diocese," but it's not all over, lads. There's there's a potential twenty years of litigation with the popes to go before I finally give up as to whether or not I'm, I'm I won this election. So, in order to try and stop this, Gregory the Tenth has a rule that if the canons of the diocese voted by two thirds to elect this guy as bishop if it was two-thirds plus then we're not interested in any appeals you can get lost i don't care how because it used to be that if you could prove that the guy was a real badden mm -hmm. you know that he's got 25 illegitimate children and a crack habit then the holy see would say i don't care how many votes he got he's not being the bishop of wherever and they put somebody else in but 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 that that had opened the door to this sort of endless litigation and, and uh, for all the wrong reasons and so so they introduced this rule that if it's a two-thirds majority which of course also ends up is, is applied to the conclave to this day uh, you need a two-thirds majority to to uh to win in a conclave um so so they introduce the rule that they're, they're not going to consider appeals against against a, a vote that's that's at least two-thirds um there's lots of measures in there against various forms of violence against clerics which again shows how how unpleasant things are getting and and the worldliness and and, and the kind of and, and the dangers that that begets um uh and um uh 
and also uh, that they return to this question of there being too many religious orders so that the canon of Lateran fall which was against the creation of new forms of religious life hasn't been properly followed and uh, and the bishops are thoroughly fed up of it and um uh hughes points out that they you know they didn't mind monks you know okay monks exempt from their jurisdiction but they live in a monastery miles away from the the the, the city in which the cathedral of the bishop is and you know it's not that big a deal but the friars are like breathing down their neck they're massively more educated than their clergy everyone's going to them for confession instead they don't have permanent endowments or they're not supposed to so they're constantly begging that's what known as mendicant friars begging friars they're constantly asking for more cash so they're drawing donations away from the bishop and and he hasn't got proper control over them and they're proliferating there's new little orders of friars coming up everywhere left right and center so so the bishops are annoyed about this and one of the, one of the key things about one of the interesting things about uh, Leon II, we don't know how unique this was to Leon II because we don't have the documentation for the other uh, earlier medieval councils but Gregory the Tenth sent out a sort of, you know, tell me what's wrong, lads. Give us a list of problems that we can discuss. So, so, and we actually have some of these sort of dossiers that came back. So, so they, um, so there was a real attempt, and you know, he's a good guy, Gregory the Tenth. There was a real attempt to try and fix the actual problems that people had in the church, and a lot of the canonical legislation is based on these dossiers that came back. But one of the things is, you promised there wasn't going to be any more religious orders, Your Holiness, and there's and there seemed to be another fifty around here. So, um, so Leon II suppresses all of these new orders since twelve fifteen. Uh, it exempts the Dominicans and the franciscans and it very grudgingly says that we'll allow the carmelites and the austin friars to carry on existing for the time being while the pope looks into it of course the pope doesn't suppress them or anything but but um but the of course the reason why they they can't really squish the austin friars and the carmelites is because the austin friars uh follow the rule of saint augustine that's what austin meaning old english word for augustine they follow the rule of saint augustine and that's obviously super duper old so you can't really squish that um and the carmelites it's all a bit unclear they say we were founded by elijah and he's even older than saint augustine so back off and uh, and and they don't quite quite so cheeky as to forge a rule of elijah they don't claim that they've got that but they they do have a rule that was agreed by the latin patriarch of, of jerusalem before the deadline and occasionally they claim to be followers of the rule of saint basil slightly implausibly in order to uh, in order to try and sneak in that way so so the carmelites have various arguments as to why they count and shouldn't be picked on so the austin friars and the carmelites managed to squeak past and the um and the dominicans and the franciscans are are thoroughly exempted even though there's, there's plenty of tension with them too um particularly at the universities because the the the, uh, the secular priests who had held all the jobs at the universities are now being pushed out by uh, high octane super trained uh, friars instead and, and there's a lot of you know bad feeling about that so uh i just briefly i should say how the whole thing so so you know leon two does a lot of good things you know not perfectly but it does a lot of good things Gregory the Tenth sees what the problems are, and he's he's making a a, a manful attempt to to fix them. Uh, it doesn't work out. Um, uh, in um, 
so in terms of the bad feeling between seculars and the friars and, and the universities and stuff, um, uh, that really boils up into, oh, I should say, of course, um, in order to help with the reunion, uh, not, not uh, more than anything else, Gregory X summons the two greatest theologians of the church living at the time to the council, Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure. And um, St. Saint Thomas dies on the way. I always wonder how history might have been different if St. Thomas had got to the council, he probably would have chatted with the Byzantines and, and worked something out a bit more like Florence uh, that might have had more chance of success. Um, uh, but uh, he didn't make it. He died on the way. Um, Bonaventure got there, but he died at the council. Um, and there's a huge uh, reaction against St. Thomas in the universities. Uh, there's, there's, there's sort of envy of St. Thomas is one of the of the big problems of the late so Middle Ages. You know, And there's a big attempt to try and get him condemned as a heretic. And in fact, um, one of um, uh, blessed Gregory X's successors, um, there's, a, there's a very quick succession of very short reigning popes just a few months after Gregory the Tenth, um, but one of his successors, John the Twenty-First, who's actually a physician, um, uh, is convinced by the enemies of Saint Thomas Aquinas to try and have him condemned as a heretic. And this is a very key moment in the um, in the doctrine of papal infallibility. It's a very helpful example of explaining the doctrine of papal infallibility to people, uh, because he, he's actually getting ready a condemnation of Saint Thomas as a heretic. When I think it's on the is it the night? It's it's it's. Is the night of the 15th of May? I think something like that, um, 1277. His, uh, his, the ceiling of his library collapses on top of him and he's buried alive. <laughs> he's just, he got paused with the pen to condemn Thomas Aquinas as a heretic. And the emergency backup uh, lever for papal infallibility is pulled <laughs> by the Trinity and bang! <laughs> and the... And the uh, the roof of his life. So he, they, they dig him out, but he's he's in an absolutely terrible state and he dies on the 20th uh, a few days later. And uh, so uh, don't mess with St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, and, uh, um, but, um, and then the, the next kind of catastrophe is that these papal elections are being gerrymandered and influenced by the dreadful Charles of Anjou, who is desperate for the reunion of uh, Leon not to work. Now, uh, poor old John Beckers is working his guts out trying to get it to, trying to show people in Constantinople that he, they, Latins may be nasty people who sacked our beautiful city, but look here, St. Athanasius and St. Cyril and St. Gregory of Nyssa, they seem to actually agree with them about the filioque. Um, and, um, uh, but, um, uh, but, uh, um, Charles Marjou is not interested in Gregory of Nyssa and Athanasius and Cyril. He's interested in butchering the population of Constantinople again and making himself ruler of the great city. So he, um, so he basically uh, cajoles and bribes Pope Martin the Fourth um, on the 18th of October 1281 into just completely gratuitously, randomly excommunicating Michael the Eighth. Now, don't get me wrong, Michael VIII is not a nice guy, as we've discussed, but he's like, this is just so that Charles of Anjou can kill lots of people in Constantinople. This is not good. Um, and uh, so he says, you're not trying hard enough uh, to, to, to accomplish the reunion, when in fact it might be said he's trying rather too hard. Um, and uh, and um, so you know, that's it, you're excommunicate. And it's completely cynical, horrendous political excommunication. So, I mean, it's a terrible moment. I mean, it, it's, it's up there with the sack of Constantinople and... Uh, Stephen of Blois running away from the First Crusade um, as as moments uh, which um, moments for which can be blamed for the fact that the Great Schism still exists. And Michael VIII dies um, just a year later, and uh, he's been 
excommunicated by those bishops who in the East who don't agree with the reunion. And he's now been completely gratuitously excommunicated by the Pope. And uh, so he dies uh, not in communion with any version of the church. And his son doesn't agree with the reunion, Andronicus II. Why he named his son after the awful Andronicus I? I don't know. But anyway, um, Andronicus, the, uh, Andronicus II doesn't agree with his father's reunion. So he just buries his dad in the ground. That's it. Nobody will bury him. So he just, there you go. Sorry. Bye, Dad. Um, and, uh, and poor old John Beckers is locked up and spends the rest of his life in prison because he, he, uh, for having been the great sponsor of the reunion. And they, they, they sort of, uh, some, some rioting anti-unionist monks temporarily frighten him into repudiating the union, but he repents, of, this is John Beckers, but he repents of this spitily and, and, and affirms the union again, and, and then, so they lock him up for the rest of his life, where he writes, you know, important stuff. And he's a heroic guy, but, um, but yeah, he's not Patriarch Constantinople anymore, at least not as far as the Byzantines are concerned. So, uh, so Charles of Anjou's got his way. He's got these destroyed the union of the churches for the sake of his squalid little plans uh, for a Mediterranean government, and um, and he, uh, he he's preparing to um, he's preparing to uh, reconquer Constantinople, and he has a you know it's all very advanced these plans, but he's sort of the last. Uh, revenge of um, of Michael the Eighth before he dies. He organises this absolutely amazing Mediterranean spanning conspiracy, uh, um, which climaxes in this sort of Godfather movie style. I know I keep referencing the Godfather. I apologize. Uh, Godfather movie style, uh, sort of um, taking out the heads of the five families moment uh, called the Sicilian Vespers on the 30th of March, uh, 1282. And the population of Sicily, who don't like this wretched Charles of Anjou guy, who's a foreign Frenchman anyway, um, they, they riot en masse in his simultaneous coordinated riots. All of his allies in Sicily are murdered. He just manages to escape with his own life. And um, so Charles of Anjou loses control of Sicily. And from that point, the kingdom of Sicily is divided. Uh, Charles of Anjou manages to hold on to the southern Italian bit, mm-hmm. which he still calls the kingdom of Sicily, even though he hasn't got Sicily because he, he thinks he should have Sicily. But the um, but uh, a, a rival a Spanish rival takes over um, the actual island of Sicily itself, and you've got a long war over that with the papacy heavily compromised, backing up Charles of Anjou, who's a horrible man, um, and uh, so you know it's further kind of degrading the reputation of, of, of the papacy. Um, but it does prevent them from sacking Constantinople again. Um, and then uh, um, one of the other things that Leon II is doing is desperately trying to bolster the Crusades. You know, uh, Jerusalem has by this time once again fallen back to the Arabs in horrible circumstances, and um, or to the Muslims in horrible circumstances. And um, uh, so the... Um, but in, in the decades after, you know, Byzantium is permanently alienated... Egypt has never been conquered. And finally, in 1291, Acre, which is, was reconquered by Richard the Lionheart, which is the most important port, keeping the kingdom of Jerusalem alive on the mainland, that falls back to Islam. And that's really the end of the kingdom of Jerusalem. The kings of Cyprus are nominally also the kings of Jerusalem mm-hmm. at this point. But, but, I mean, the actual kingdom of Jerusalem is, is, is gone, really. It's, it exists nominally, I believe. The current head of the House of Habsburg is the nominal King of Jerusalem, although there are several several claimants to the title. But um, yeah, so um, as you can see, basically uh, Leon II is a bit tragic because because its its work is all undone within a few decades after 
um, after its its conclusion, and the papacy really deteriorates, and um, and you get a lot of a lot of a lot of you know many signs of decline. So, so it's it's a melancholy event, mm -hmm. the Second Council of Lyon. It, it's it's a last attempt by a holy pope to try and remedy the problems which have been created by the uh, the fact that they never reconciled the Byzantines. They created this Western Empire that then became a monster that was even more of a problem for them than the Eastern Empire had been beforehand. And they never fully resolve it. And they never they never fully reconcile the Byzantines and the papacy's sweeping international reforming powers start to become a problem that consumes the papacy itself because it becomes a magnet for corrupt people and corrupt practices. And um and uh, yeah, so Sorry to be end on a bit of a downer, but the but the yeah so the Leon two does a lot of good things, but it's it's a little bit too little too late unfortunately. So as I said at the end of the last one, we're now we're now on the downward trajectory, I'm afraid. And and Leon two is one of those moments when a gentle decline starts to afterwards. Leon two itself is is okay; it's a kind of ridge, but then 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 there's a much yeah, steeper decline afterwards. Oh man. Well, Doc, appreciate it. And uh, hey, what's your book again that everyone can get? Integralism, a Manual of Political Philosophy, published by Ediciones Scholastica um, at the uh, competitive price of $31 softback. The link's okay. below in the show notes, so go ahead and get, get you guys one for uh, weekend reading. <laughs> Doc, appreciate it. We'll see you next week. See you around.